This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hey, welcome back to Talkin' Mule Deer. I'm Steve Belinda, your host, and today we're going to be talking Wyoming. Uh, we have with us, of course, our very own Sean Blazjack from uh, Powell. And one of his neighbors, and someone that many of you may know, it's Ike Eastman from the president and CEO of uh, Eastman Publishing. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on. So how's the the weather been this year, guys? You made it down. We've had an amazing winter, actually. Uh, A couple Saturdays ago, it was 72 degrees in my house, which it should be like 10 below by now. And then it started snowing, of course, last Monday, and we've had some snow but we haven't had the real cold winter which is good as you know deer can handle yeah. they can either handle cold or they can handle snow but they can't handle both well we got the 50 inches out of that storm and we're what just an hour away yeah and then it's been blowing so our winter ranges are probably in a little bit different shape in yep. southern montana so um so the eastman family for many of you who may be listening you, sh- you should know that <laughs> i mean when you when i mean i tell you what one of my early interests in mule deer was because of what the eastmans were doing out on winter edge we were talking yesterday about uh with one of your employees a former mdf uh staff brandon yeah. yeah about extreme bucks one through four in the raculator i still have my <laughs> raculator on my bookshelf and you know what's funny about that Ike, is i had completely forgot that thing even existed so we went out well, when that first came out, I actually bought the package for my father, who li- was living in Pennsylvania at the time. And, you know, so a bunch of us are like, ah, this thing's, you know, hokey. And so we got some deer and we scored them. And then we, you know, went and scored them with the raculator. And it was very, very accurate. I, we couldn't <laughs> believe how accurate that thing was. And yeah. for the uninitiated here, the raculator was a Chinese spin wheel where you lined up stuff and then... At the end of the day, after you lined everything up, you looked to the right, and it told you the range of what the deer was going to be in. It's so. just, it, all it is is a, 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 well, what do they call them? So, uh, uh, is it a paper computer? Yeah. Or something like that. We use it as, as pilots. That's how you calculate yeah. fuel and all that stuff. It's yeah. the same. It's the same concept. Because my grandfather was a pilot, yeah. so he'd been using that and went, I could do this for deer. This Sean's easy. looking at us like, what the hell? I, ju- I just really like the name they gave it. <laughs> the Raculator? That's sort of the best name I could think of. <laughs> so your grandfather was Gordon? Yes. Was. Yep. And so tell us a little bit about how you guys got interested in, you know, you're from Wyoming, but yep. not originally, you know, it, but when, so, when most people think easements, we think in mill deer and Wyoming. Yeah. So, so uh, I'll give you, the, I'll give you the, the 30,000 quick thing. My grandfather, 1957, uh, Gordon Eastman was, they were living in Omak, Washington, and uh, he mortgaged the house and bought a camera and went to Alaska and started filming wildlife. Uh, nobody was doing it back then, and uh, he was a really true adventurer. I mean, he was a real adventurer, and he started filming wildlife and then ended up in Jackson filming actually elk on the winter range on in the elk refuge in Jackson and came home and told my grandmother, we're moving to Jackson. Yeah. So my dad when he was little, moved to Jackson. Now, my mom's side of the family has been in Wyoming for five generations. I mean, they, they've been there for a long time. Um, so the wildlife, obviously, in our family has been a very important thing for a long, long time, for generations, great-grandfathers, all this stuff. 
So they moved to Wyoming in the mule deer, what they called the mule deer heyday. Yeah. I mean, you go to the winter range in Pinedale, and there was literally millions of deer in Wyoming. Yeah. And and, and there would be hundreds of thousands of deer. It was like ants out there. Um, obviously sparked an interest in my father, who filmed, took photos, filmed, and hung out in 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 the the program that we that we watched last night. Uh, he says this best. He goes, I I won't. I think people should hang, should see and hang out with animals all year round. You better yeah. understand them. I mean, hunting them is one thing, but if you understand their habits in the winter or habits in the spring, you understand them way better, and you'll, make, you'll be a more successful hunter. Yeah, I often say think like the deer, not like yeah. the human hunting the deer. Yep, exactly. So that's kind of a an overview. Obviously, we own uh, our, the, I own three or two magazines and a whole digital platform, a television show on the outdoor channel. And, it, and it's basically bringing our adventures to uh, the, the common guy. And one thing that we fight for uh, is the conservation of wildlife, but it's also the conservation of our way of life as a hunter. And it's for the common hunter. I, I'm not into, you know, the, the high end guys that are hunting high fences and these huge hunts. It's more about the common applicant for hunting licenses and that's yeah. what we fight for and so in wyoming i mean you got you got 48 percent of the state that's public yep and you know the, that western half of the state where a lot of the sagebrush and mm-hmm. your habitat and even some of our high that's public and so yeah. you know it, it's a tremendous state to just go out and roam yep. if you draw the tag you've got basically a ton of places to go hunt i mean that's one of the things that i grew up in pennsylvania and uh, came out west because my dad used to come out hunting, and I've got a little anecdote for you there here that uh, <laughs> uh, uh, he. Um, but and and I just fell in love with it, and so you know it's. Uh, I consider Southern Wyoming a small town. Southern Wyoming, my adopted home, because yeah. you know it's one of those places I moved to during college. Moved right there after college, and got married there. You know, mm-hmm. met my wife's from Rollins. And, I'm sorry. You know, so it's uh, they have a family ranch that's uh, <laughs> been in the family <laughs> since before statehood outside of Gillette. So it's really wow. It's as much home to me as a as a foreigner in Wyoming as it, as it is anywhere else. And um, but so when my father used to come out hunting, and they would go south of Jackson, you know, and they would mm-hmm. hunt mule deer and elk, and he had a handful of friends from Pennsylvania that would try to draw tags every year, and um. They apparently somewhere along someone in your family was looking to maybe sell them one of their permits, and they went through it. And so a couple of years ago, my mother asked me to look through some of the paperwork. You know, this is ten years after my father died, and just to see if it was you know something we should throw out or not. And really, what it was, it was back and forth between this group of hunters and someone I don't remember who in your family about purchasing one of the. The outfitting licenses and that. So So. we had, uh, in our family, we've had three outfitting. Uh, My dad had one, my my Uncle Rod had one, and my Uncle Brad had one. So what time of frame was it? This was in the early 70s. So it could have been my dad's. Yeah, so it was, um, I'm I'm, going to find that and send you a copy of it. But it was, you know, Hoback Village when they were, that's still for sale, by the way, there in Bonneron. But it was all, and it was just as, and they ended up, you know, the deal ended up not not happening. Not happening, yeah. But we have the correspondence back and forth with the, you know, negotiation and all that other stuff. I was like, this is really cool. That is cool. You know, I, I just think how my life would have changed. You know, we all so at the same time, my father had a chance to buy 
purchase uh, one of the pharmacies. He was a pharmacist in okay. Jackson. Okay. So we did the whole family thing, and they looked at it, and we spent a month in the summertime. Doing you could own Jackson Drug. Yeah, that's the one they were offering to sell him. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And uh, so he didn't do it for a lot of reasons, you know, yeah. being from Pennsylvania. Having, I had five brothers, so six boys, large family, you know, moving my mom, you know, that she's, you know, it's it's really foreign. It's a different world. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because, you know, when older when we knew about this, it was always like a family lure, but we would say, why did you turn it down? He goes, well, we never thought anything was going to be a Jackson. <laughs> and he never came was, back. You know, when we were when we were growing up in Jackson, it was a small, small town. There was, you know. 3,500 people live there. And it, I mean, it was a playground for us. It was an awesome place. Now, now all the billionaires have pushed out the millionaires and I don't even like going back there anymore. But so since that, that didn't happen, he hadn't been back. So we, I had lived in Wyoming for, he had been back to Southern Wyoming to mm-hmm. visit me and, you know, do the thing, but he had never gone back to Jackson. And so we moved to Pinedale, uh, had a child, you know, we're freshly married in that. And they came out, my dad came out and we wanted to go into the park because he had yeah. been 30 years since he'd been in the park. So we stopped in Jackson for the day and he oh. walked around the square and then he stood in front of Jackson drug. And it was just like, it was like, and he just looked and he said, you know, he can't live in the past. Yeah, so, it's but, true. Yeah. I'll bet, I'll bet there was some, dang, I should have done that, but <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, we all have that. Oh, yeah. so it's one of those things. But, you know, speaking of that, um, you grew up in Wyoming, your family, grew, you've seen a lot of changes. Oh man. What are the biggest changes you're seeing? You know, we we were talking offline about winter range issues. Yeah. And that, you know what? Really, what, do, what in your opinion or in your you know knowledge base? What do you think are the biggest issues we're facing in Wyoming? What have we done good? What have we? But what really? What do we got to do to the future to maintain our deer herds and our other wildlife and our hunting access? So I'm gonna I'm gonna get on my soapbox and I apologize to you and the audience because I get passionate about this. Uh. Brandon, the guy that used to be yeah, with yeah. Mule Deer Foundation, he says this all the time. He, he said it's not one thing that affects uh, management of, of wildlife, especially mule deer. There's not one secret sauce. It's a combined like five or six things that affect them. But one of them, it, you know, obviously winners. Winners is hard. But we can't control that. Right. What we can control is winter range. Habitat. We can help habitat. One of the biggest problems that I see with with mule deer is the urban sprawl. If you go to the Red Desert right now, back when I was a kid, it would take you hours to go 10 miles. There were two track roads, rocky roads. You couldn't go more than five miles an hour. Now, they're gravel roads. You can drive 60 miles an hour on those things. So Yeah, that cut down from Jeffrey City down to the interstate, man. You can do that in less than an hour. Yeah, yeah. And so, urban straw. The good thing is we have the knowledge now to, to through this mule deer migration initiative, they've collared these mule deer and they found out that it's not, mule deer don't migrate like water. They don't just come out of the hills everywhere. There's pinch points. And if we can help control those pinch points, those corridors is what they're calling them, and we can help those deer uh, allevi- or alleviate some of the barriers for those corridors, which is easy. This is simple stuff. It's it's highway crossings. It's it's top rails on fences. It's you know that Fremont. The, there's a and I can't remember the guy's name, but Luke they, Lynch. The, Luke Lynch. Yeah, yeah the Luke yeah. Lynch, where they bought 340 acres that was going to be a housing development. I don't know how many houses would be in that yeah. 500 or some silly thing, and they bought that and then donated it to the Game and Fish to manage. Um, that is a giant pinch point. There's 5,000 head of deer migrate through that thing. Yeah. 
that would have stopped. And deer are fickle. I, in my opinion, you know better because I'm not a biologist, but in my opinion, deer are so fickle that if they, if you'd have done that, it would have taken two generations for that 5,000 to have readjusted their migration yeah. if they could have survived the winter. Well, on that one, you know, there, with, with the elk fence that was put up back in the 50s to keep deer out of the haystacks yeah. and out of town, you know, they had to go move that fence, too. And, and yep. it was a great cooperative ever. You know, losing Luke was a huge loss yep. when he, he perished in a, in a skiing accident a couple yep. of years ago. But, you know, I know of a couple other, not from the radio collar data, but from living over there and, and going out and observing things. And Well, that yeah, that highway crossing, they, I think they call it the Antelope Crossing or something like that. Trapper's crosses, Point. Trapper's, Trapper's Point. point. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge. Yeah. There's a couple down along, you know, along the Boulder River and some other. There's a rock out there. We were actually out on a, a sponsored field tour of, you know, uh, we're going to show you. And I said, you take them up to the rock? And the biologist looked at me and said, how do you know about that? <laughs> it's about five minutes from my house on an ATV. I used to come up here in the fall and spring and sit on the rock and have a beer and watch every animal that came through here walk at the edge of the rock. You know, yeah. they were, they, they, they could go other, but they didn't. It's like a beacon. Yeah. It's like a lighthouse for them. So, Sean, we talked about this, and you and I work on this. Um, and you may not know this, Oak, but we, like, but we we just secured in the last year almost a million dollars for habitat work to be applied in these priority areas from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. That's awesome. So, Sean, tell us a little bit about how There's that's going to work. Your Pitt and Robbins money at work. Yeah, yeah, and this is actually from a NIFWF grant or the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. And so a lot of it will be fence work and habitat work. I think there's over 50 miles of fence that are going to be re- removed or modified. Nice. So it's wildlife friendly. Um, we always try to get those kind of monies, especially in those, like he was saying, those bottleneck areas, the high-use areas, the stopovers in those corridors. And luckily, folks in Wyoming really care. I mean, you can look at our legislature. They're looking at stuff. And make sure you voice your opinion, of course. It's not always good and and always, but... You know, we had an executive order come out of Migration Corridor. So Wyoming is looking at this issue and trying to work the right way. But we need members to support Mule Deer Foundation and other organizations so we can get more money on the ground to improve these things. Well, I I get that question a lot, you know, especially since we've been doing this project. People going, okay, I understand. How do I get involved? Yeah. Uh, You know, I don't have a ton of money. I said, it doesn't take a ton of money. It's, it's, uh, you know how you fill a bucket of water? One drop at a time. And so, you know, donate when you can and use your, if you don't have a ton of money, use your, you know, you got time off, help, help with the Finch project, help with, you know, whatever, whatever, I'm sure volunteers is one of your guys' struggles. Wouldn't, Absolutely. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Good. Yeah. I mean, that's Sean's world, but you know, just getting involved that, that message of doing what you can do, phone calls, showing up, donations, you know, caring about the resource that we all love. And showing up, you know, we had a we had a thing in Wyoming recently that was uh, in the ballot. There's a bunch of Wyoming uh, wildlife things in, in the House and the Senate right now. And showing up and, and telling, telling your representatives, dude, I'm a hunter and I don't agree with this or I will wholeheartedly agree with this. And that's huge. And in Wyoming, we live in such a cool place that... Our vote really does matter because we're so small. I mean, you know, how, do you know how you win a primary in Wyoming? Do you know what, how many votes that takes? Yeah. Less than a thousand. <laughs> Is that crazy? Yeah. You couldn't win a primary in high school at a high school prom for a thousand. Yeah, and the nice thing about Wyoming is everyone cares about our hunting heritage. We just got to step up and do yeah. things and 
put our money where it needs to be, put our efforts where they need to be, volunteer, talk with your local representatives. Just make sure you're staying involved. And, and you know, informed. Us, Eastman's, a lot of other places put out good information for you to become informed yep. on all these issues. Um, you know, just make sure you stay informed and keep in touch and yep. volunteer. Do what you can to help the resource. Yep. So, Ike, back to what's the most famous Eastman mule deer? I think I have my opinion which one it was. What's the most famous one out there that that was a named deer in either extreme bucks? So you're gonna or you're gonna you're gonna say Popeye, and I'm gonna say Morty. Morty. I would say Morty. But Goliath. I think Goliath. It, okay, here's my opinion. Goliath was uh, he's an amazing deer, but he was shot by a hunter. Yeah. In my opinion, as a hunter, I want to I want to know the other stories. I want to know that that those huge deer like Popeye never got took yeah. because it, it gives me hope the Goliath, Goliath was shot obviously by yeah. a utah guy yeah. actually and uh, so we used to so when do you know how, do you, before we jump do you know how morty died uh-uh. here's nobody no. knows this we, we were because of this project we were talking around the table at family dinner and we were talking about this morty was killed by a truck a oil-filled truck whacked him in the in the winter wow that crazy? Yeah, you know. So when I was over in Pinedale working on that oil and gas issue in the winter range, we would argue all the time. I'd say, "Listen, it's, we need the resources of this country across the board, but there are places that are too special to drill." And you know, where you get into conflict, let's do things a little differently. And then you know, you get the infrastructure thrown down, you get roads put in. I mean, I I came up on twenty one pronghorn antelope. You may have seen that picture before. Yeah. That was the next morning. Everyone thought we staged that and everything else. And it's like, <laughs> I was going out to look at some sage grouse, and they were in the middle of the road. And um, they stayed there for, like, three weeks. No one came and picked them up. It was crazy. Jeez. The eagles flew in, the ravens. It was Jeez. just like, we finally went out, and we're like, you know what? Let's, let's move this. Yeah. I don't, don't want to see But the anymore. deer thing, it was like, so, and, and some of the companies wanted to do the right thing. And we made things like no dogs in the trucks, because mm-hmm. canids and cervids, have evolved to one was prey, one was predator. There's a, there's a, a flight instinct in a deer, regardless of the size of the dog that it sees. Oh, yeah. And so your dog may be the best dog in the world or a little yippy dog. That deer doesn't know that. It knows. And it causes stress. That's right. It causes stress. It burns energy. And let's face it, deer die usually based on one or two days in the spring. Yep. So before green up. And yep. so we would do, and people were like, oh, my dog, you know, no guns in trucks. Yeah. Why? Because poaching is a crime of opportunity. When you're out on the Pinedale Winter Ranges and the Big Piney Winter Ranges and you see a Goliath or you yeah. see a Morty or you see a Popeye, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of people that that instinctive urge that I have to reduce that animal to possession no matter what. They get the fever. Yeah. If you don't right. have a, vehicle, a firearm in a vehicle, you can't, you're not going to do it. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, we started doing those things and then, you know what, we, we started getting pushed back. So, so one of the one of the interesting things when we started working with the energy companies about limiting the impact because they were out in the winter range drilling. Right. Guess who came to us and said, "Wait a minute here, I'm Joe Q. Public. I've not been allowed out there forever." Yeah. And now all of a sudden you're allowing infrastructure to pop up, and they're absolutely right. Yeah. So what we said is, okay, here's the difference. Those folks are getting permitted. They're going through a process. They're actually paying. Being vetted. You know, being, I wouldn't say being vetted, but we have made choices society that energy development is going to happen. And so they actually go through and it's a quite lengthy progress process. It can be an administrative burden. It costs the companies a lot of money. So you build that stuff in. The public isn't going through that. So, 
you know what? When they're out there, we did things like, okay, sort of like a parking permit. Put a sticker on the window. If you're out there, you know that sticker. You shouldn't be out there. Get out. Right. We're trying to eliminate as much impact yeah. and disturbance to these deer. We put up a toll booth. And, oh, God, man. You should. Oh, I'll bet that was awesome. Oh, and, and then we, <laughs> and then, and then here's the other thing. Oh, my gosh. I would not want to man that. Oh, it was 24-7, too. You had to stop in, check in. Oh. When you were going in and out, and someone would open the gate, and you know they did it for a couple of years, and and it actually reduced. Yeah. But the calls I would, everyone knew I was doing the calls oh, I was getting. The other thing we did is we said, you know what, you one in and out. Yeah. No, you're not gonna go. People would call me and say, well, I can't go have lunch with my wife because it takes me too long to drive the loop back around. I said, not my problem. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking out for the deer. Yep. And we did, and it worked, but then it just, it wasn't sustainable. And of course, the, the, the quest for energy and everything else, right. sort of, we forget about that. But you know, we lost half our deer herd over there mm-hmm. on, on one of the, what I think was one of the most important winter ranges. And the reason I think that was directly back to what you guys did with your filming in that, you know, everyone knew where the Mesa was, everyone yeah. knew everything else. And I was just like, how can we be doing this? And, you know, I was one voice. It was my opinion as a hunter, as a biologist, but, you know, I did everything I could. And what I found out, I didn't have people standing up with me. Yeah. And that's what you're saying. Stand, up, stand up with the folks that yeah. are advocating and the professionals that are tasked to take care of our wildlife. Exactly. And I know we keep mentioning this film, but I could you tell our listeners yeah. what this film was and what it's about so, so they know what we're talking about. So one of the one of the things that we got uh, a lot of pushback when we were filming these deer and making the Popeyes and the Glass and the Mortys popular, one of the pushbacks is you're making it you're making these deer popular, everybody wants to go see them. And it that wasn't unintended consequences what what we really were trying to do is inform people that this winter range is so important don't mess with the winter range do you know listen to the biologists the guys that that have the the boots on the ground and the knowledge that those toll booths are important that impact you know is going to affect and cut our deer in half again and so what we did is we took um this year, the Migration Initiative, they, they collared a bunch of deer for four years, and they tracked every couple hours. They'd get a pin on a GPS, and they tracked where these deer were migrating to. And they actually have a doe that migrated 242 yeah, miles. Island Park down yeah. to the interstate. Yeah. Which, I don't know why you would. I don't know why you would. I, I, I Island asked Park Matt Kaufman, is a horrible place to summer. I, I, here's what I asked Matt Kaufman. He, he's yeah. tired. I said, Matt, why do deer walk through perfectly good winter range with thousands of other deer staying on that range to get to suboptimal range yeah. 100 miles south? And, and you know, the answer is because that's what they were trained to exactly, do. Exactly, because that's so. what their mom trained them to yeah. do. But anyway, so we took that information. Of course, my dad spent uh, a lifetime, over 60 years, uh, studying mule deer, and that's that was his thing. And the winter range, summer range, everything. And so we took his knowledge with Matt Kaufman's information and we have one of the only video libraries of footage of those deer from the 80s until now. And so we took this and combined it into a, uh, a public service announcement, basically, to get involved. It, you, you know, not, it doesn't have to be $1,000. It could be 5 bucks in your time to get involved so that this migration corridors maintain or get better in some cases, get better, like you were talking about fences and all this stuff, get better so that that... that critical habitat in the winter and gets better 
not only because that's that's one thing we can affect. That's what we can do. I can't change the weather. I can't change right. winters. That's something I can't do. I can't change the habitat in the mountains if it greens up early or or it doesn't have enough rain or or fires. But we can affect the winter range when those those deer are so critical. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a film. We showed it last night. The the Mule Deer Foundation banquet uh, Friday night. We showed a pr- premiere. I guess you call it. It's going to be a thirty minute film. Uh, short film. It's going to have some hunts in it, and we're going to air it on the Outdoor Channel in September during Deer Week. Oh, so, great. Yeah. great. So. so, Sean, how can folks get involved in Wyoming? I mean, you're building chapters. You're you're doing stuff. I mean, tell us a little bit about what your plans are for the year. Yeah, for the year, my plans are, you know, this springtime, we'll do a lot of banquets and other events like Gunnapaloozas and Beers for Deer, just trying to raise funds. And then during the summer, we'll have youth events, getting people involved in you know, hunting, trying to get youth involved because, you know, R3 is big in the U.S., which is retention, recruitment, and reactivation. Um, trying to make sure we get more and more hunters back in the field because numbers have been dwindling, even though our population has been growing in the U.S. Right. And we so, talked about the reason is, is we're still on a user pay model. When they're purchasing licenses and they're purchasing, you know, ammo and firearms, that's going directly back to the management of that. Plus, if you're out there hunting, you're going to love that country you're going to yep. want to take care of. So, yep. you know, get folks out. Yeah, hunters are the greatest conservationists we have in the U.S. and, and in the world. So, well, you know, we always money. want more hunters. I don't know the statistic, but you guys might know. How much money is the Pittman Marauders get a, month, a year? Is it? I, it, I heard $40 billion, but I, I don't know yeah, if that's I don't, true. I don't know. I mean, it's probably in the B, but it's, you know, understand how the distribution model is. Pittman-Robertson is an excise tax that is collected on firearms, ammunition, and other stuff. Um, and it varies between 9 and 11%. So it's collected by uh, the retailer. Yeah. And that goes to the feds. And then uh, the federal government redistributes that money based on license sales and a whole lot of other there's a lot of formula there and then that's redistributed back so when we have folks purchasing more guns and ammunition we get what we call the pr bump yep and when that passes we seem to get less of a less one of the things we have trouble doing sometimes is the required match there's a match requirement to put that money into play. So you have to, and some states have had issues with not having match, non-federal match, right. so that they can't, and so you end up building a trust fund or a corpus. But it works really well. I'm, I, I'm not an expert on that, but and there are people that way, but it's a lot of money. And actually, there's a bill going working its so way through Congress right now called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which uses that same model, the algorithm and right. the distribution model. But it's going to be money from originally set up to be money from XI or uh, oil and gas. Uh-huh. But now it's going to be uh, appropriated funds in that because there was just two. I mean, think about the paradox there. Right. To get more money for wildlife, you got to allow more development out of wildlife habitat. <laughs> I was screaming. Quite this a bit. Seems you know, a little I, hypocritical. Well, that's what the Land and Water Conservation Fund is. Back in the seventies, that was the deal that was cut. Is if we're going to go to the Gulf of Mexico and some of these places, we're going to carve a big chunk of that piece of money back, and we're going to give it back to the states yeah. and to the feds to purchase lands to do the mitigation, to do the replacement areas, to do all these things. Hey, as a national bill, our elected officials, right. it was you know times have changed since then, but and, and it's never been fully funded. That's a nine hundred. Uh, million dollar a year that but but it's an appropriated fund rather than a dedicated fund. okay and i don't want to get into you know political science and all that other stuff but at the end of the day 
elect, you know, the House or the Senate, and then politics can basically say, you know, we don't want to put the money in there, even though the law says you will. Yeah. They say, you know what, we got to do a budget bill too, so we're not going to do that. So, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think the important thing is 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 the PR in the uh, the user pay model works. For it to work, we have to have people out buying licenses and hunting so that the excise taxes are collected. We're getting money through hunting licenses, and then they're matching it. And the, the, our, our state fishing game agencies can go out and do what they're paid to do. Right. They're highly trained, experienced folks that are out there looking out for wildlife for the people of the state that they work in. Right. And so, you know, that's one of the things that bothers me as a, a wildlife professional is when hunters start really putting down our state wild, our red shirts in Wyoming. Right. You know, you don't understand what it takes to do this those, job. And those what, guys... Those guys, I'm pointing at Sean because he comes from that world, they are the most underpaid, overworked people in our state. Yeah. They are. And Tremendous respect for every one yeah, of them in every state. They're all incredibly dedicated to the resource. They're actually yeah. doing it for the love of wildlife. Yeah. They're not doing it for the money. So, I mean. it's And we are, in Wyoming, we're one of the few states that's self-funded. We don't yeah. ha- we don't take money out of, the, out of the general budget for Wyoming. And, you know, the other thing is they're giving up a lot of their hunting and fishing time. Oh, yeah. To do that. So, Absolutely. You know, Most I, of it. You know, one of the reasons I became a Fed is because I had some flexibility then to, yeah. you know, take some time <laughs> yeah. off during both season of Wyoming and go do these things. But it, it's it really is. That's why Sean started working for the Mule Deer Foundation. Yeah, yeah I actually get to hunt now. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, we're, we're running out of time here, but I want to come back and say, how'd you do this year? I, I did really well. I had uh, I had the opportunity to kill a really nice deer in Colorado and uh, nice deer in Wyoming, and actually I I branched out and killed a real nice mule deer in Nebraska this year. Where was that in Wyoming? Nebraska. <laughs> um, it was uh, the southern part of Wyoming. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the reason I asked that is is you know I'm chasing some points, and I think we're going to use them this year. And are you? And uh, yeah, we've been trying to get G. We're we're a point behind. I can hunt H. I mean, yeah. H is a good unit. So you're um, at six. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, in my opinion, H and G are awesome hunts. I think they're overpointed, though. Yeah. Oh, for yeah. the hunt. I think well, they're going points, up every year. Oh, yeah. I yeah. think three points is, is that you can expect a three that hunt to be a three-point, uh, not a seven. Yeah. But I don't know. I was like, if I could, you know, one friend of mine drew 130 last year. Oh, yeah. how did he do? Well, he filmed it. You know, it's a, it's um, he did really well. That's awesome. Um, you know that that's had, a that's a funky area because if you don't get the weather, yeah, it could be a ghost town out there. Yeah. Well, you know, I've gone down there and sat on the road and drank coffee and watched those big bucks walk on the bumper. You yeah. know, when you get that weather, and I actually had a I was coming back. I was elk hunting. We got early weather. It was above the house. Uh, was chasing these elk and, you know, ended up screwing up on this really big bull in the timber and was getting back to the truck and it was snowing and I unloaded my gun at about 200 yards from the truck because, you know, it was about 10 minutes of light left and I walked back and I opened the truck door and something just makes me turn around and look and I turn over and there's about a 30-inch wide muley with points. The stuff you guys filmed, standing about 75 yards away. So here I'm trying to get reloaded and it's standing (laughs) there and I pull up and as just as the crosshairs find the head, start swinging and he just turns and walks away into the timber and it was, you know, that last two to three minutes of light that's the, you know, you lose light almost by the second and he walked off and so I come back the next morning I never found him again. But Uh that that was probably one of the biggest bucks that I actually could have had an opportunity and I just didn't, I thought the hunt was over. 
Yeah. I mean, it was almost like, you know, when we're pheasant hunting and we get near the truck, we think the hunt's over. Yeah. And then but all a the lot birds of times and all the birds jump <laughs> up. So, yeah. Uh, we really appreciate your time. We, we yeah. appreciate everything you. that your family and you have done for Wyoming. We really look forward to uh, this film you're putting out yeah. having an impact. Yeah. And getting folks understanding what we have to do to take care of these special places like Wyoming. Yeah. And how to get involved in, you know, hopefully it spurs at least one person to action. Because that's all we can ever do is, is well, one person at a time. And so. I don't want you to think that it's only Wyoming. We're starting in Wyoming because that's where it started. But this is going to be something that every state, like I said, every western state has migrating mule deer in it. And this is just a precursor to whatever state you hunt or live in, get involved. Because this, this is how we're going to help that resource. Yeah, and, you know, it's a perfect match for us with our our winter range mig- uh, migration and winter range initiative yep. to, to be working with y'all on this and yeah. i know that miles has been talking to you guys and you know the other the last, uh, last thing i'll leave you on is make sure you take care of sean's better half over there because you know, we need him to be happy and productive <laughs> so. i've known sean's better half for the better half of three decades <laughs> <laughs> he's known my better half longer than i have <laughs> that's true so that's sean true. anything to leave us with you know um you know, how can folks get involved this year with MDF in Wyoming? Just check out our website and our Facebook. And if you don't have a chapter near you and you want to get involved, give me a call, email me. Just get a hold of us and we'll get you involved and make sure you can actually either get your feet on the ground or get so you're doing gunapaloozas deers for deers banquets we like to say come for the fun stay for the conservation yep yep it's a fun time you'll spend some money but the money goes to conservation i mean we know we'll have a good time but yeah also try to open your wallet if you can yep yeah and and last thing and then we're signing off is do you know our listeners should be uh looking for this almost million dollars we're going to be putting on the ground. We're going to be announcing when it's going out there and, you know, documenting what's going mm-hmm. on because, you know, we don't want folks saying, what are you, what are you guys doing? We want to show them what we're doing. Yeah. So, and we're real, real proud of, of this grant and the opportunity to work with private landowners, Wyoming Game Fish and the federal agencies on it. So. Yeah. And Very we were cool. honored to have your video premiere here at the Western Hunting Expo as yeah, well. I'm glad I'm I'm happy that it worked out and I thank you guys for, for doing that. It was awesome. It was a fun night. And so Ike, Sean, thank you. Uh, until next time, I'm Steve Belinda and thank you for talking Mule Deer. Yeah. Thanks for talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.